You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, can you respond to allegations that you are the James Gallagher of the Co-Main Event Podcast? I don't, I don't understand the reference. You talk a big game, but in the end, you're just going to get super kicked in the face. Um, I, I think that what you mean is, can I confirm for everybody in the co-main event po- podcast that I'm the guy who's going to go out there, get kicked in the face, uh-huh. but then still remain somehow cocky and arrogant afterwards. Refer to yourself as the shit during an Instagram post? You know, that's the only way you can do it if you're going to get kicked in the face. You know what I've Also, kn- when you said James Gallagher at first, I thought you were talking about the Oasis guys. Well, those are the Gallagher brothers, okay. correct? Okay, what are their names? Uh, Ethan? And- Noel? Noel is one, right? Okay. Noel Gallagher? <laughs> Did I just make up Ethan Gallagher as an Oasis member? We're going to have to get on the internet and He find plays out. keyboard. Look, we're recording this thing in the, U- the United States of America, Okay. right? Okay. And maybe if we Fair were enough. overseas, maybe we were, if we were part of the British Empire... Also, would know the names of uh, the Gallagher brothers. You asked me about some Gallagher. I'm going to assume he's a, uh, a fullback for Liverpool. Well, we're talking about him today on the show. Okay. So I thought that you might recognize the name at got, the very least. I got it now. Okay, yeah. When you place it in a context for me, I got it now. You didn't deny it, I noticed. Word on the street going around that you're the James Gallagher of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I didn't hear a denial, not a hard denial from Ben Folks. I don't. I, what does that make you of the Co-Main Event podcast? I'm the Darian Caldwell. So, you're just kind of over there, just chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much. I I don't think I have to explain myself. I'm just the Darian Caldwell of the Co-Main Event podcast. I know you're not kicking anybody in the face because you can't get your foot up that high. That's true. That, well, that would make me the uh, who was the guy James Gallagher fought? That guy. And no, no, he fought somebody else. No, he, no, yeah, he, he did not fight Caldwell. That's right. what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Um. The dude. I'm just going to say Antonio Banderas because it's, it's something like that. It's it's like that, but it's not that. It's not exactly the. the I'm 100% confident. I didn't that it nail wasn't it, Antonio but Banderas. I think that's going to work. People know who you mean. People know who I mean. Ben, I finished Fletch over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Reminds me. Terrific book, by the way. Took me uh, all of about. We're going to put this right here for the people uh, live stream to well, check out the that, actual physical copy of Fletch. That's the same. Uh, it's the same edition that I have. Yeah. Except I mine's a different printing, a different, uh, different texture on the cover. There's a lot of food for thought in here. There's going to be a lot of stuff for us to talk about come August the 31st when we sit down to record the Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club concerning the novel Fletch by Gregory McDonald. Yeah, we're going to have to do a, a deep dive into the, the character of Fletch. But one thing that you cannot deny about this book, it does not ever give you a chance to get bored. Just rapid fire movement no it doesn't in fact maybe i should save this for the book club episode but when i was done i went back and reread the uh, first scene over again which this thing just picks up right exactly where it should there's no there's no fat on this thing no at all none at all 
You read, it comes in like under 200 pages. You read the first scene of Fletch, you start to realize how well put together this thing is. It's like Gregory McDonald built an extremely beautiful yet functional table. Huh. That's how I would compare Fletch. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. If you haven't read Fletch out there yet in listener land, you still have about 12 days before we go ahead and record the thing. Uh, that's going to come out Friday, August 31st. As I said, it's going to be available to everyone. Uh, Fletch is a, a quick read, as we just alluded to. It's a good book. I don't think you'll be sorry that you read it. So you want to uh, plow through. takes a, a couple of sittings, at least. And then email us your thoughts. We've been getting a lot of good responses. Yeah? Already. I have something to offer up as a prize for an especially good response. Out of nowhere, I get a, another package of those UFC cards that Tops makes. Okay. They just show up at my house in the mail sometimes. I don't know what to do with them. Yeah. So, uh... Somebody sends us a particularly thoughtful or interesting or funny or just good question. I'm going to put those back in that box. I'm going to put your name on it. Send it to you. You know what I like about that? Easier to mail than a bobblehead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or a hat, for instance. We yeah. had to go and procure your own box for it. That's right. Ben, uh, tell the kids how the Patreon is going and how they can get down with it if they want to. Chad, if you want to get down with the Patreon, it's pretty easy. All you really have to do is go to patreon.com slash event. Guess how many patrons we're sitting at right now? How many people are down with the sickness? Um, at least a dozen. At least a couple dozen. 740. Wow. That's right. That continues to shock me. Blows my mind every time you tell me how many we got. Yeah. And we got several different pay tiers. We got all kinds of good, fun, extra stuff on the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have some actual merchandise up there pretty soon. What do you know about that? No, I love it. I like, uh, I like every part of it. We got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, George St. Pierre says he wants the winner of Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov. But Dana White says not going to happen. Apparently... The UFC isn't interested in these one-off money grabs. Nah, they don't want that. Long silence here. I'm pausing so we can put the laugh track in. Oh, okay. We're going to put it in in post? Yeah, we'll put the laugh track in in post. Okay. So I wanted to let it breathe a little bit. Nice, good thinking. Round number two, James Vick and Justin Gaethje put a scrap on this Saturday night. We shouldn't have to talk you into watching that one, but we're going to do it anyway. And in round number three at Bellator 204 this past weekend, James Gallagher saw his bid to become Bellator's answer to Conor McGregor get blown the fuck up, and Darian Caldwell started hashtag just saying stuff, including just spitballing some new rules about how the bantamweight and featherweight titles ought to work. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us from Craig Tasker, which actually came through as a comment on the Patreon. Okay, so we got to, we'll, we'll give you a little extra consideration when we see your shit pop up on the Patreon. And it also made me reflect that there's just a myriad ways people can get in touch with us these days. Perhaps too many ways. Perhaps too many ways. From Craig Tasker, he writes, Has the CME been following the PFL? I personally have been loving the format. Reminds me of the old Bellator days. They have been doing a great job telling stories through the video packages. The fights have been entertaining, and I enjoy Boss Rutan and Randy Couture on commentary. What do you guys think about their first six events? So PFL 6 went down. That's right. Last week. You know what I enjoy about the, the PFL thing is... 
there's a lot of it's kind of no nonsense. We get down to business here. It doesn't feel like as much of a slog when I've sat down to watch it. And maybe part of that is because I have not had to actually work a PFL event, so every time I've watched it, I'm doing so recreationally, and so I get reminded of what it is to just be able to kind of sit back and enjoy a night of fights. But uh, we plug along here. There are some good fights. I enjoy more than I thought I would kind of the the whole season structure of it and thinking about like, okay, this counts for this many points, and if, but if you, you go to decision, it counts for fewer points. I kind of enjoy that. Like, there's a more nuanced way to think of it than just, like, one guy won, one guy lost, see him again in three to four months, and by then you'll have forgotten about it. Big night for Magomeds, by the way, at PFL 6. Well, there's a lot of Magomeds to be had in the PFL kind of structure, as we pointed out before. It appears that three Magomeds got victories on this card. One of which, by the way, was Magomed, Magomed Karamov, which I think counts for two. You think so? Yeah, but then you got Abu Bakar Nurmagomedov, and you got uh, Abu Spian Magomedov. Right. Uh, which I think is is if you're just a huge Magomed, you qualify as a Magomedov. Well, he he was a middleweight, right? So must be a big one. Uh so that's three Magomeds, all picking up wins. Nary a loss for a Magomed this past weekend. Has a Magomed been defeated yet in PFL? That I don't have the answer to in front of me. I don't have full Megamed stats at my disposal. My gut says no. All right, let's talk about Kayla Harrison, Ben, who picks up her second MMA win at PFL 6, defeats uh, Josette Cotton via TKO in the third round, a minute and 24 seconds in uh, to that. We talked about Kayla Harrison after her debut for the PFL, and I think that the talking points remain somewhat the same. But it, I, I just keep returning to this idea that in Kayla Harrison... I feel like the PFL has kind of a superstar on its hands, like a, a potential diamond in the rough when you're talking about organizations outside the UFC, someone that could really garner a lot of attention and bring a lot of eyeballs to the PFL. And the trouble, I think, continues to be and will continue to be finding her fights. Right. Well, for one thing, when you're at a weight class, that effectively doesn't exist. That doesn't help. It seems like you're going to be able to, at least for a while, convince people to come up and fight her because it's a it's a big opportunity if you're somebody nobody has ever heard of if you go out there and you beat Kayla Harrison then suddenly people care about you so I think there will be a lot of people who will sign up to take that ride if I were them I would sign up sooner rather than later however because now's the time to get in there and surprise Kayla Harrison six to twelve months from now not the time you know what I'm saying did you know that the PFL Wikipedia page actually has the standings welterweight and middleweight standings uh i can i just took a quick quick look i believe magomeds have suffered one loss in the pfl shocking abu bakar nurmagomedov is one and one okay in the pfl he has three total points all right all right it's not so bad that's pretty good he's still in it yeah trailing ray cooper who's uh out in front with 11 points and then over in the middleweight tournament uh oh Abu Spian Magomedov, my guy, my pick. <laughs> it's your guy? He's in first place with 12 points. Uh, are you more optimistic about how this whole, you know, the rebranding of the WSOF as the PFL and this new structure, now that we've seen a few of it in practice, are you more optimistic about this actually working out? Or does it still seem, as I think we described it at, time, or at the time when we first heard the news, as kind of like a last gasp? 
we got to do something here kind of effort. Yeah, I'm, I, I guess I am a little bit more optimistic. I mean, just based on the fact that the PFL seems to uh, have grabbed a little real estate for themselves. Like the MMA fans are clearly given the PFL a chance uh, and it's they're garnering good reviews from what I've read. Most people that take the time to check out PFL come away feeling positive about it. So uh, they're not just getting ignored. Like they're definitely yeah. a, a, a player at this point in this in the scene. I guess maybe uh, at least in terms of American MMA, would you have to say that they are th- that they're third now, they're yes. like third overall? They've but I mean they were, they were kind of third place. before, right? As WSOF. Yeah, but at the same time, like this whole rebrand seemed risky at the time that it was announced, and it, you, you were right to say that it seemed like kind of a hail mary effort. So the fact that that uh, the rebrand has sort of found its footing as the PFL, and that it seems like it's going to go forward at least for the time being, I think can only be considered a positive. I still think, Ben, that the number one thing that has to happen regarding this first PFL season is that you got to finish it. Yes. And the checks got to clear. That's right. Especially the, the big grand prizes at the end. Everybody need to get their money. Right. Because that's like the thing. Right? When they first announced the concept, that was the thing where we all went, okay. Show us your books. Let's see how this goes. You really have that money to give out? Yeah. So, I mean, I think they're off to a good start, but uh, checks got to clear. That's right. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson. She writes, so UFC 230 is looking pretty stacked, but still no title fight announced. If Poirier versus Diaz is the co-main, it seems like they're holding out hope for something big uh, for the main. The consensus seems to be that John Jones is going to be involved in the main since they need a pretty big name to justify somebody fighting above Dustin and Nate. Uh, but they haven't even announced yet what they're doing about his most recent issue. Do you feel the UFC will just say all is forgiven? He's already covered his suspension and put him in the main event, even though I believe I remember Dana White saying that Jones will never headline another card. Insert eye roll here. Or is there somebody else you feel that may make sense for the main event in this card that's looking pretty amazing? And who do you feel he'd fight? Jones versus DC. There's a lot of questions from Tracy Dickinson. Jones versus DC at heavyweight would be pretty interesting, but I don't think there's any way that would happen and potentially mess up the Brock fight. A Gustafson rematch, maybe. Okay, let's talk for one thing about what's going on with John Jones. Because uh, UFC 230, you know, I heard Chael Sonnen this tossing around this rumor that John Jones might fight at UFC 230. They are doing the TBA versus TBD kind of thing as the main event right now, and it's in Madison Square Garden, so you know they're going to want to roll out something big for that and really cash in. Uh, but it's also November 3rd. Like, it's, it's kind of coming up here. Yeah, yeah, like, right around the corner. If you're going to be fighting in the main event, especially if you're going to be fighting in a big fight with maybe a title on the line or something, you want to know about it pretty soon. Yeah. You need to, to block off some, some time in your schedule for that one. Also... I, I agree with Tracy Dickinson that it seems like there's a very good chance that the UFC is just going to pop up any day now and, and you know, USADA is going to pop up any day now and be like, we've agreed to a, a, a suspension with John Jones. It ended yesterday. Uh, time served, basically. Because it's been a while. It's been over a year since the initial failed drug test. Other people have had, you know, they popped positive and had it resolved in that window. So we're still waiting to hear about John Jones. It seems increasingly likely the more time that goes by that what we're going to hear is he has been serving the suspension. Right. Yeah. I mean, that does seem like the most likely outcome here, especially uh, considering the feeling we've gotten from some uh, past uh, USADA suspension efforts. Um, It would be very UFC also, would it not, for John Jones to sort of appear out of nowhere 
a little bit earlier than we thought he would probably be ready to go and slot him into the main event spot here at UFC 230. It would make a big splash. Uh, everyone would love it. There would be a lot of celebration. It just seems like sort of like a, a quintessential UFC move to surprise us with a, with a John Jones fight booking. Uh, as for who he would fight and what it would be for, you'll remember that when Conor McGregor became the champ champ, his reign did not last long. Also the, at Madison Square Garden, with the two With the two titles. That's right. right. Does it feel to you like the idea of Daniel Cormier being light heavyweight and heavyweight champ at the same time has already served its purpose? Like if we went out and stripped DC of the 205-pound title and let's say we booked Jones versus Gustafson in a fight for that vacant title so that they wouldn't have to mess around with any interim nonsense you could say the winner of this is the straight up 205 pound champ does that feel fair to you does it feel like the right move would it feel like uh, a disservice to dc in any way i agree that we've gotten a lot of mileage already out of dc as the champ champ and it seems like maybe even the ufc has learned about the failure to really squeeze the conor mcgregor champ champ moment for all it was worth before they busied themselves with moving on with both divisions uh, you see a lot more Daniel Cormier champ champ, even just like merchandise out there. So they they do seem like they, they've gotten some mileage out of it. And one of the things that we were saying kind of from the beginning is that it's just not feasible, especially for a guy his age with his kind of short-term plan, meaning fight Brock Lesnar and retire rich, to defend two belts. It just doesn't seem like he's going to do it. The UFC seems like it's got too much money riding on holding out for this Brock Lesnar fight in January or February. And so what's the sense in having DC hang around at light heavyweight to fight like, you know, just somebody who happens to be a warm body. Now, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, that would be a legitimately huge fight. But can you, could you even conceivably make that fight inside a, you know, two months, basically? Jones versus Gustafson, you mean? Jones or are you talking Cor- about like, Jones versus Cormier for the light heavyweight? Right, like, like, let's just say. Like, well, I don't think you want to do dream that. Dream scenario. Yeah, I don't think. Like, that would be the biggest fight you could make, obviously. But then either one of them could fight Brock Lesnar if, if it came down to it. You I know? mean, that's true. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's a good point. Uh, boy, that would feel awful rushed to me to try to put together the trilogy. Yes. To try to. Uh, and that's if they announced it today. Yeah, bring DC back down uh, from heavyweight to light heavyweight. Have him fight the guy who's, like, been the thorn in his side. The only guy who's really gotten over on him. Whew, I have a hard time believing that they could book that one. I would think, like, when when DC first set the hard and fast retirement date for himself of his 40th birthday in March of 2019, I thought what we would do was try to squeeze in first Lesnar and then maybe Jones uh, at heavyweight if DC won the Brock Lesnar fight. Uh, now I wonder maybe if a, a third fight with Jones isn't really in DC's plans. And I also wonder, like, I mean, it would be if you're if you're if you're Cormier, you couldn't script it much better than to walk away if you beat Brock. At the same time, if you remain the UFC heavyweight champion, a third fight with Jones would be so huge if it was for the heavyweight title. Uh, can you see DC maybe saying, "All right, instead of March, I'll retire in July after I fight John Jones one more time at heavyweight." Yes, I, could. Gonna, I think it would make perfect sense to have Jones come back, beat Gustafson, win the light heavyweight title and then say, I'm fighting the winner of, of uh, Lesnar versus DC uh, for the heavyweight strap. Because then you also, like, uh, you don't take the chance of short-circuiting any of that 
uh, unless Jones were to lose to Gustafson. Right, yeah, which is entirely possible. I mean, it was a close fight last time, and John Jones been off a little while. Um, yeah, it, it does seem like if something's going to happen there, it needs to happen soon. And I, I would not really get too mad if the UFC were like, all right, Daniel Cormier has agreed to vacate the light heavyweight title. It's going to go up for grabs. John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson. Who's in a position to complain then? And the division gets to move on, and we all got to have our champ champ fun. Yeah. Uh, I assume that you follow uh, the the uh, Jackson Winkle John social media accounts. Uh, Brandon Gibson. Uh, follow Brandon Gibson. One of the head sure, coaches yeah. over there. I've noticed that it seems like Jones is in the gym a lot yeah. these days. A lot of uh, training pictures of, of Brandon working out with, with John Bones Jones. Looking good getting off the bus, too. Yeah. So, you know like, what I mean. If, you, if you're just hunting around for uh, stuff in the air, it seems like Jones is, is at least, at the very least, keeping himself in the gym, which maybe makes you wonder if he knows something is coming up. You know what's going to happen, right? We're going to put this podcast out later today, Tuesday morning, first thing. John Jones is back. I mean, that's how it would go, right? Yeah. If, if history is is uh, is pretext. That or he's been arrested. This UFC 230 card, as Tracy Dickinson points out, looks pretty awesome. You got Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa, Jacare Souza versus David Branch, Poye versus Diaz, Derek Brunson versus Israel Adesanya, and then uh, Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman kind of floating around in the ether. Uh, and then, you know, Lyman Good, Lando Venata, some other uh, notable people on the on the card there. So if you put Jones versus Gustafson on top of that, I, I got to think you'd have a winner. Yeah, and you'd be able to charge a ton of money for tickets in New York City, which is kind of the goal. Next question this week comes to us from Kyle Kelly Yoner. He writes, I'm struggling to gauge the net positive social impact of MMA outside the shit-eating wild man echo chamber. I have anecdotal evidence of combat sports' positive impact. There's jujitsu, the jujitsu armbar therapy aka when somebody gets the ego-driven broness armbarred out of them en route to seeing everyone as equals or at least equally capable of tapping them out there's non-profit gyms that help at-risk youth by giving them self-confidence and a sense of structure through combat sports training and then there's statistical data of the negative impact which your boy ben folks tweeted three years ago oh wow so he's going back in the archives in the vault using utilizing search right now Here's your tweet, Ben. The rate of domestic violence in MMA is two times the national average and three times the NFL average. Right. That was from, in all fairness, that was from HBO's Real Sports. That was their stat, not mine. And there's some caveats that you could naturally throw into that, meaning like basically anybody who signs up down to local civic auditorium could be an MMA fighter, whereas the barrier to entry to the NFL a little higher than that. That's right. But, but anyway. Smash cut to 2018, Dana White is still bros with Greg Hardy. Now, in the wake of Donnie Aaron's despicable actions against Andrea Lee as a fan... Alleged. Alleged actions. Alleged. I'm, I'm really struggling to balance my love of the sport with my disgust towards people like Donnie Aaron who inhabit it. Also, I just donated to ABA's Fund for Justice and Education to benefit the Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence because I'm sick of tweeting about this shit and not doing anything. Nice. So, is MMA doing good in the world or at least doing better? Are promoters morally bankrupt? What do you think? Discourse. Obviously, this, is a, this opens up a, a, a huge can of worms and the potential for discussion. That's right. A good, a good question from well, Kyle Kelly Yoner, although maybe a bigger overall topic than we are able to discuss in the next six minutes. Right. I'd also say it kind of sets up a bit of a false dichotomy that MMA has to be either a force for good in the world or a force for bad. Right, when, which is not necessarily 
a dichotomy that is uh, imposed on other sports, by the way. Or on anything, you know. Uh, right. I mean, you know, I think of it, it's kind of like uh, like your boy Marcus Aurelius said about the world in general. Not necessarily a place of good or evil, but a place for good or evil. And we see both. I, I do think that one thing that I've become more aware of, I guess, over the years, and from talking to my friends, uh, some of them who run and own gyms, like who do MMA gyms and jiu-jitsu gyms and stuff, and one of the things that they talk about is how they came to realize, you know, your job is not really training fighters. Even though that's kind of like the exciting part, that's what you think about a lot. But what you realize makes an impact are just the regular people who come in and train. Like, kind of like this, you know, the arm bar therapy, maybe a little bit. Although I knew plenty of guys in jiu-jitsu who could get beat up and still end up being tremendous assholes just as people. So it doesn't necessarily work on everybody. But just the that it like a martial arts study can be a personal journey for anybody that enriches their life. Even if they never fight, even if it's just going to the gym and training, it can be a really good thing for people. And I think that that is absolutely true, and that is happening in tons of people's lives, and you just don't hear about it because they're not pro fighters. Um, are there fighters, though, who do terrible things and will continue to do terrible things, as well as like trainers and just people tangentially associated with the fight world? Absolutely. Like, that's probably going to continue to happen. But I don't know. I, like, I don't think there's anything about the sport itself that's going to make somebody more likely than they otherwise would have been to be, like, a domestic abuser or to be, you know, just a shitty person. But as we talked about before, sometimes MMA is the misfit sport. Like, you started out doing something else, probably, before you wound up doing this. There's pro fighting by its nature especially like in American culture, it's kind of like it's not the first thing you start out doing. Yeah. Uh, and so when you are kind of the sport of misfits, sometimes you get some really bad misfits. I think that that, that probably explains it more than the sport taking otherwise you know, completely inoffensive people and transforming them into villains somehow. Yeah, and I think like the undercurrent of what you're saying, I think it was with all good points, and it's that martial arts or MMA isn't necessarily the, the negative or positive force there. Uh, you're just, you know, you're, you're collecting a certain segment of the population, people that, that start out wanting to do one thing and end up, for whatever reason, having to come to MMA. And also because you're dealing with, like, uh, combat sports. Like, you, you, to be willing to take on the challenge and the... Like everything, all of the baggage that comes with being a professional fighter, literally physically beating people up for, as your job, doesn't appeal to everyone. No. You are only going to get like a certain kind of personality, which feels unfair to say because you actually get a wide array of personalities in mixed martial arts, with everyone, which everyone knows. But at the same time, like there's bound to be some bad apples in that box, I guess, if you are... Uh, if that's going to be your job, it's not like everyone, if you're, it's not like you're going to work at the library, right? You were definitely not going to work at the library. Well, and, uh, but this is a good point. Like, you know, Dana White still bros with Greg Hardy. You know, there is a misfit who the misfit behavior is what ran him out of another sport. Right. But then, you know, and he kind of looked around and correctly figured out like this sport will have me because they'll have basically anybody. If you yeah. can go out there and knock somebody out. Right. And the question like, are promoters just morally bankrupt? I mean, for the most part, I would say that you don't get into fight promoting because you're like, here's a business where I could really make a difference in people's lives. I could be a positive force in the social fabric. Yeah. You, you go in there for money. And 
the business of fight promoting is not one that rewards like morally upright behavior. It's one that where you got to go out there and put on a show and find a way to to make money and make sure the money ends up in your pocket rather than somebody else's. Like that's the kind of business it is and that's the kind of people that it attracts and we've known that that it's been that way its entire existence. Yeah. Uh, last question this week comes to us from David Dinkins, who I be- believe was the mayor of New York. Okay. At one point. Uh, he writes... Good to hear from him. Diego the Nightmare Dream Lionheart Sanchez is back, having been booked for a fight against Craig White in just a few weeks. I believe that's at UFC 228. Uh, we already know Diego is the last member of the original Tough cast, still slanging them bungalows on a regular basis. And Chris Lieben's upcoming bare-knuckle fight aside... But now I'm wondering what it means for him to get booked into a fight against someone who doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. A couple weeks back on the pod, you guys talked about the practice of using old names to build up new lions. Is that what's going on here with Sanchez? And if so, does that make us feel sad? So Ben, this is an interesting question about what exactly is going on with this UFC 228 booking of Diego Sanchez versus Craig White. Yeah, thanks, thank you, by the way, to 91-year-old former New York City Mayor David Dinkins. So we can only assume he's retired, and he probably has, a lot, has a lot of time on his hands. Goes on walks, listens to the podcast. If you look at Craig White's Fight Finder profile, since he doesn't have a Wikipedia page, I'm not totally sure that he fits the mold of young, up-and-coming superstar that we're going to feed Diego Sanchez to. He's coming off a loss in what I believe was his UFC debut against Neil Magny. And so to like book him against Diego Sanchez, to me, it feels more like a fight that is bound to be a slobber knocker, a fast paced, uh, striking based affair. And the UFC will just take whatever happens. Like whoever wins fine with them. First of all, a couple things here. You mentioning the fight finder thing. I got to say, and this is not easy for me to admit. I've become a tapology guy now. Okay, I when believe it, that when, there's when a, an argument to, to be to, made. Yeah, to looking up fighters. Also, I'm gonna have to move this book for a second so you can see this. You see David, David, yeah. or uh, yeah. Craig White's Craig picture, White. the Thundercat on tapology, where he is covered in blood. Yep, and looking, you know, at best mildly annoyed yep. about that fact, reminiscent of the old Carlos Condit uh, yes. fight finder biopic. Um, but. Before he goes in there and takes that loss to Neil Magny, which he took that one on short notice, right? I mean, am I remembering that correctly? I have no idea. I think that was one of those where it's like, hey, we need an opponent for Neil Magny really quickly. Somebody fell out. Uh, you take this fight, it gets you into the UFC kind of deal. He was on a four-fight win streak before that. I understand what you're saying, that it's not like he's some guy who's 9-0. and We're grooming him. We need a name for him to beat up. Diego Sanchez is that name. But... It also doesn't seem like nobody at the UFC is sitting around going right now like, all right, we need to think long term with this Diego Sanchez situation. We're we're thinking one fight to the next yeah. with Diego Sanchez. And I I can't say that there's not some thinking on the UFC's part like, well, Craig White goes out there and he gets back in the win column against Diego Sanchez. Hey, he beat a, a legend of the sport. We can use that. And if Diego Sanchez wins... Well, it's not like it's an absolute disaster where you had a whole lot invested in Craig White. Right, the Thundercat. Exactly. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That link is, once again, uh, newly functional all over again. So if you want to send some email to the podcast, 
Uh, we're back up and running there. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short and it's informative. Uh, we're trying to roll out Breakfast of Champions version 2.0, which I assume would happen in the next couple of weeks. We put out a call. Weirdly enough, we put out the call that to say if people had ideas for what they wanted to see in a, a re revisioned uh, Breakfast of Champions, they should let us know. And then the uh, email function on the website went out oh, immediately after. Well, come on. So, like, if you still got thoughts on the Breakfast of Champions, features that you think would make you feel like it was a can't-miss email every week, stuff you want to see in there, let us know. We got some good ideas already from people, by the way, who've written in uh, to tell us what they'd like to see. But well, we want to hear from you, co-main event universe. Let us know uh, what could go down with the BOC. Uh, as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, UFC 229 featuring Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov is still more than a month away. But we're already doing the thing where we're jumping to the post-fight and trying to figure out what happens next. To that end, former welterweight and middleweight champion George St. Pierre, arguably the greatest of all time at this point, has gone ahead and thrown his French-Canadian hat into the ring to say that he wants to fight the winner of Habib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor, which seems like a winner of a fight if, if all you care about is raking in huge piles of gold to the UFC coffers. Dana White has come out and said, not so fast, GSP. Maybe we learned our lesson last time when you came back, took the middleweight title off Michael Bisping, and then immediately uh, segued back into semi-retirement. In your trading shots column with Danny Downs this week, which I know you love to plug here on the podcast. It just ends up being relevant. It's not my fault. We got our finger on the pulse, man. You're both basically calling bullshit on this idea, right? The idea that Dana White and the UFC are just not interested in one-off money grabs? Yeah. Maybe because they've shown in the past and in plans for the very near future that they are pretty interested in that. You can't sit there and say, like, hey, I'm not interested in a guy who doesn't, you know, who's just kind of picking the most profitable fights for himself, and we're not going to do that. And then also turn around and be like, Brock Lesnar for the heavyweight title. Right. That's exactly what that is. Especially, like Brock Lesnar is fucking 40 years old. Right. And he's a pro wrestler. Yeah. From what everybody tells me, he's not even particularly active in the pro wrestling world when it comes to defending titles. Which Didn't he, didn't he lose? He, lose he did. His I believe he coughed title? up the universal title to Roman Reigns. Universal title. Yeah. Wow. He doesn't get much bigger than that. No, it does not. Uh, you can't tell me that that guy is interested in sticking around as the UFC heavyweight champion defending the belt two to three times a year should he win it. Yeah. Everybody knows what that is. It's like a, it's like almost a farcical uh, proposal that you're not going to do George St. Pierre against the winner of this fight because you would be worried that George St. Pierre wouldn't stick around to be like a defending lightweight champion or whatever would happen, whatever weight you would have this fight at. When you when you're doing the same damn thing at heavyweight. Yeah, you know, and we got a question uh, from the 
through the Patreon from Jay Gergiulio. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but who identifies himself as the sweeper from Crystal Palace. So okay, there's that. Nice. Thanks um, for thanks. So we don't have to look that up. Yeah, Jay. But he, in talking about this same thing, is saying like, you know, doesn't it feel like listening to Dana White used to be insightful? Like he used to do the thing where he would do those media scrums after uh, press conferences, after events and stuff. And he'd always be a little bit surprised at the things like the nuggets of information he would let go with and the, the insight into the UFC's business and its thinking that you would get some kind in this like off the cuff way. And now it feels more and more like there's this running joke in MMA where when Dana White says something is not happening, that's the proof that it's definitely happening. Uh, stuff like this, where you have to approach it, not only by assuming that he's lying, but asking yourself exactly why he's lying. Right. Like what's the actual angle he's trying to work. And it was the same thing with the last GSP fight where it was when he resisted the UFC's preferred timeline for fighting Michael Bisping, then it was, well, okay, that's it then. He missed it. He missed the window. Uh, I don't think GSP wants to fight anymore. It, forget it. We're moving on. And everybody knew you weren't moving on. It was just a tactic to get him to do what he what you wanted him to do. And it didn't work anyway because G- GSP, as Danny Downs kind of correctly pointed out, is like the one person you can't pull that shit on. He's, he's not going to be manipulated that way. And so when I hear the UFC being like, no, we would turn down this boatload of money. I'm like, is this just because Dana White is mad about how it went last time with George St. Pierre? Would he really, out of sheer spite, turn down that much money? Because either way it goes. Conor McGregor wins. Nurmi wins. Either one of them against GSP next is a monster damn fight. Doesn't it feel like at this point, if you've been around the sport for a long time, doesn't it almost feel like Dana White is a member of your family at this point? Like, (laughs) we have watched him operate for so long. And frankly, at this point, with so much... Uh, access to almost everything about Dana White, at least professionally, that I feel like we know his moves at this point. It's like he's your uncle. There are not that many moves either. Like, like He's going to the same playbook a lot. Remember back before Uncle Larry realized that he should shave his head and get his teeth fixed and get a personal stylist? Like We still remember old Uncle Larry yes. and how he used to uh, appear and operate. Like, we know what Dana White's moves are at this point. We know when he calls us up and says he's not going to lend us the money that he said he was going to lend us uh, for college. It's only because he's mad at us and he is trying to swing the negotiation in his favor. Right? Yeah, he, he wanted us to Dana go to White state. Doing. Yeah. We, we had to go off to the, uh, the posh U over there in the city. And, you know, he just wants to have a talk about it, basically. And the right. way he's going to do it is by pretending to have made a bold proclamation. He wants us to pursue engineering at the state university rather than a liberal arts degree uh, somewhere else. Which is, which is fair, honestly. Gotta, I mean, so in some way, you got to see the guy's point. But, like, we all know at this point that that's what Dana White's doing, right? Like, he ain't fooling anybody, right. including George St. Pierre. Well, and see, one of the weird things about it that Danny and I discussed, at least for me, was that I... This position he lays out where he says, you know, we're not interested in these one-off money fights where they don't go anywhere. And that used to be what I felt like I was saying. is don't do these (laughs) one-off money fights that don't go anywhere. Because look what happened at middleweight. Everybody told you what was going to happen at middleweight. George St. Pierre is going to fight for the belt. If he wins it, he's not going to stick around and fight any middleweights. And that's exactly what happened. Luke Rockhold stood there in the cage afterwards and was like, look, he's not going to fight any of us, man. Come on. And... That's exactly what happened, and so it left you with a little bit of a mess to clean up. Fortunately, you had Bobby Knuckles sitting there, who already seemed like the heir apparent, so it's not too hard 
to get people to accept the idea, okay, this guy is the actual middleweight champion now. And I can understand why you would be reluctant to have that situation at lightweight, except that you've already, you've already done this. We, we went through it already. You made a bunch of money that way. We know how much you enjoyed it. And honestly, GSP versus Michael Bisping was a great fucking fight. It was a fight you could get excited about beforehand once you got past some of the ridiculousness of it. It was a fun-as-hell fight to watch. It felt like a really big deal. The same way that if he could get down to 155, which that would be a legitimate question for me, and, and you know safely get down there, GSP versus either one of those guys is a huge fight. And the UFC, it seems like, has conditioned us at this point to just be able to accept, like, okay, hey, we're making fun fights for the hell of it, even when they don't make sense, even when we have to twist ourselves into a pretzel trying to offer some kind of logical justification for it. They've convinced me. All right, I'm on board with that. But now don't act like you're too serious a sports organization to possibly consider it. Okay, considering the personalities involved here, I 100% expect that if Conor McGregor beats Habib Nurmagomedov, we get Conor McGregor versus George St. Pierre at some weight. But let me present, like, I don't know if it's a devil's advocate option here, but is it at all possible that the UFC has simply calmed the fuck down in the wake of signing this television deal with ESPN, which is going to bring them a lot of money? Because remember, when when we started down this fun fight, super fight road, It was because we all thought WMEIMG had just bought the company. They paid all this money. They need to get their money back. Is it possible that now that it seems less gargantuan a task to get that money back, that we are kind of like course correcting and returning to the old ways of the UFC, which was frankly more of like a straightforward divisional setup. We are less interested in, in one-off money fights uh, or not. You're you're saying maybe the UFC has gotten less interested in money, in making money? I'm saying maybe that they realized that they were on a short-term con with all these money fights, and now they're like, okay, it seems like everything's going to be okay. We got some money. Uh, let's go back to the thing that, that worked for such a long time. Do I need to start talking about Brock Lesnar again? <laughs> Is that what you want me to do? I just felt like I had to throw that out there. Like, <laughs> present an alternate theory. No, I do not. I think that is the least likely scenario that is happening is that the UFC is like, all right, time to get back to business and like, let's, let's be serious, you guys. Let's stop trying to just make a bunch of money and let's start seriously thinking about being a steward of this sport. I agree with you, especially since like, I, I kind of felt like the Conor McGregor, Habib Nurmagomedov booking was a weird one for Conor McGregor because I like, remember before he went off on his personal walkabout to fight uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. He was all about the big fights. Now he comes back and he takes what is legitimately a big fight, maybe the biggest fight available, but it's also the toughest fight. And it's also the fight that needed to be made for the 155 pound weight class to sort of move forward. Uh, so I feel like if McGregor wins, especially if McGregor wins, that he may well insist on George St. Pierre. Now, and it seems like, frankly, a fight he could win. Uh, but I, that just seems like the home run shoot the moon option that will interest Conor McGregor, that will interest George St. Pierre, that will ultimately interest the UFC. Like, it just seems unthinkable that they wouldn't do it. Here's what I wonder, though. Say Conor McGregor loses this fight. Which is? Very real possibility. Possible. Very possible. Uh, And then he says, I want to fight George St. Pierre. That's still a big fight. That's still the fight to make, right? 
well, do you think George St. Pierre's interest cools off a lot if we're like, hey, uh, George, how about Habib instead? Do you think at that point he's like, what's Connor up to still? I think when he laid out his kind of criteria for taking another fight, which, as always, was very logical and very thought through and sober, as it always is from George St. Pierre, and his criteria were basically, one, you know, yeah, it should make me a bunch of money. Two, it should add to my legacy, which is one of the things he said, like, why he was not interested in an Anderson Silva fight anymore, was that, uh, I think as he put it, like, people can already see me as the winner, and it doesn't do as much to beat Anderson Silva now as it would have, you know, 10 years ago. And the same thing where they ask him, like, okay, how about Nate Diaz, which he said the UFC offered him. And he was like, well, then I kind of look like a bully. I beat Nate. I beat Nick. I go and I beat Nate. People already assume that I would beat Nate. It doesn't do anything for my legacy to beat Nate Diaz. Like, I want a big fight where it feels like winning it is really super meaningful. I don't know if Conor McGregor coming off a loss to Khabib would really fulfill that category. It fulfills the first one, though. It definitely does. Uh, and maybe... And you know what? Habib would fulfill the other one, especially if it's for the lightweight title. Right. So... Well, and I also think, though, that if you're the UFC, the calculation changes depending on who wins. Because you're, if if Nurmagomedov wins, he beats Conor McGregor, yeah, I think that he's going to be a bigger star than he is now. But he's not going to like replace Conor McGregor's drawing power. Right. And so you're still going to turn around and be like, okay, what do we do now? Uh, Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson? Because then you're back in like the mid-level pay-per-view range. Like yeah. I think you could sell you know half a million pay-per-views with Nurmi and Tony Ferguson. But, uh, you know, if you got Conor McGregor coming out of that one, then you can kind of do whatever you want and still break the bank each time. I think if, if Nurmagomedov ends up still the champion, then maybe you need somebody like George St. Pierre to come in there and give it a little extra juice in order for the next one to be a huge fight as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not like Highlander or whatever. You don't just absorb the powers of that, whoever you beat. That is unfortunate, Chad. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, speaking of Dana White handing out nuggets of information, number one, are you fucking kidding me that he went on this, like, Tony Robbins podcast like Dana White got interviewed by renowned expert on motivation and positivity Tony Robbins is that like an accurate description of who he is I I don't really follow the man's work that closely but that's what I've gleaned it just makes you realize like what a weird world Dana White traffics in right like yeah sure Tony Robbins podcast why not also while he was on that show He said that the UFC, Ben, in the wake of signing this deal with ESPN that I talked about earlier in the round, is now valued at $7 billion. Okay. I would love to say, are you fucking kidding me to that? But you'll recall, we didn't remember, we didn't believe the guy the first time. And it turned out, okay, man, you sold the company for uh, $2.4 billion or whatever. $7 billion now, though? You fucking kidding me? That's a quick turnaround. Good investment, I guess. It's not like a disbelieving, are you fucking kidding me? At this point, it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Also, did you see Dana White's the subject of some kind of Fox News feature piece? That makes sense, right? Yeah, it sure does. sure does. My, are you fucking kidding me? I saw this uh, via MMA junkies Mike Bone, who passed it on in the uh, the group chat, or as you like to call him, Mike Bone. Bad to the bone. Uh, A tweet from... 20-year-old Canadian MMA fighter fights in the TKO organization, uh, TJ Laramie. Um, the words in the tweet just say, LMAO, my girlfriend just cheated on me in real life. 
And then there's a video of him, it seems, catching his girlfriend basically in the act of cheating on him and yelling at her while a dude really quickly gathers his things and tries to get out of there. The best part about it is that as he is, you know, verbally criticizing her for cheating on him, he keeps calling her bro. You just cheated on me, bro. And then seems really excited to post the video. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not sure. You maybe could have kept that video in the back pocket. Maybe you, maybe you want to give yourself some cool time to cool down after that before you decide if that's something you really want to post there. What's this guy's name? TJ Laramie. Feels a little bit like TJ Laramie's telling on himself in some ways. This is one of those situations. Totally are you fucking kidding me worthy, by the way. But it seems like one of those situations where the person who makes the video ends up telling us more about themselves than maybe they, they anticipated. Number one, continually calls his girlfriend bro. Bro. Which, I don't know, man. If I'm that girlfriend, maybe I'd start to think about other options. MMA fighter boyfriend always calls me bro, for starters. Maybe I want to find a nice guy who doesn't call me bro. I'm just saying. That's all it takes for you, isn't it? Somebody doesn't call you bro. Most, I got the bars pretty low at this point. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, the next and perhaps critical chapter in the Justin Gaethje story is about to be written. This Saturday, over there in Lincoln, Nebraska, at the Pinnacle Bank Arena, granddaddy of them all, in the main event of UFC Fight Night 135, he takes on James Vick, who has kind of cast himself as, in some ways, the anti-Gaethje. That he is the thinking man's fighter. The guy who's not going to go out there and get his brain pounded to mush for nothing, whereas Gaethje is just like, no, I am going to go out there and get my and your brain pounded to mush, and people will fucking love it. Now this one, not only does, like, style-wise, it excites me a little bit, but this could be a major turning point for your boy Justin Gaethje. Well, it could conceivably be a major turning point for either guy, right? Like, if James Vick gets a win in a main event against Justin Gaethje, that could conceivably be really good for James Vick. And if Justin Gaethje falls uh, his third in a row, I believe, right, that he will have lost here, uh, that could conceivably be pretty bad uh, for the future prospects of Justin Gaethje, despite the fact that I think we've talked about before, he doesn't become disinteresting at that point. I think we all continue to want to watch Justin Gaethje, although maybe not for all of the most admirable reasons. Uh, he still is a marketable uh, guy, I think, if he loses. Although it does, it does, as I think you said last time we talked about, beg the question: How long can we go on on this trajectory, on this career path? It also makes me wonder if even he would start to reconsider the strategy if he lost three. Because it's one thing to be like, "Hey, I know fighting this way, I'm going to lose eventually." Then you lose one. You say, "You know what? I still this is the way I do it. It's exciting. People love it. I'm going to go out there and take my chances." Then you lose another one. Then you go out there against the guy who is like, you're an idiot for doing this. <laughs> and then that guy beats you too. Is that the point where you're like, all right, let's go back to the drawing board a little bit. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like when it comes to the idea of a professional fighter totally changing all of its, its stripes, right? Becoming, reinventing himself and becoming a different person. 
I feel like that's really easy to talk about, especially by two guys who are just hosting a podcast. But like, do you think Justin Gaethje could do that? 29 years old, knee deep in this MMA career where this is the thing he has been since the beginning. It's the thing that brought him to the dance. It's the thing that makes him popular. When you when you talk to Justin Gaethje, despite the fact that he seems to have a real realistic uh, outlook on it, it also seems like that's a big part of who he is, is this fighting style. Do you believe that Justin Gaethje could go back to the drawing board and reinvent himself? And next thing you know, he's out here uh, taking fools down like he's George St. Pierre. Physically, yes. I think that he could decide to become a different kind of fighter, or at least a slightly different kind of fighter. I question whether psychologically, because first right. that would require you saying to yourself, this was wrong. This was the wrong path. That's basically take. what I'm asking you is, do you think like, like almost any professional fighter, do you think it's psychologically possible for Justin Gaethje to basically get in a phone booth and emerge as someone else? <laughs> well, losing three in a row might kind of stuff you into a phone booth in some ways. You, you, you got to tell yourself something to come out of that phone booth. At that point, right? And either you tell yourself, like, you know what? Maybe I need to completely double down on this strategy. Maybe I just need to get better at doing this thing. Or maybe I need to take slightly fewer chances. Maybe I need to be a little more tactical. I could see something like that happening where, you know, you look at it and you're like, all right, maybe, and we've seen this with other fighters, where they kind of fall in love with being like a bonus fighter. Right, well, like they, they, Leonard Garcia is the example I always think of. Where you out there, you win a few fight of the night bonuses, and then every fight you're in, you're just throwing haymakers from the very start because you got your eyes on that bonus. You're looking for a fight of the night bonus, whether you win or lose. And then the next thing you know, you're sitting on three or four losses. It's possible, I think, to back up a little bit from that and be like, "All right, I can still be an exciting fighter without running face first into punches." Um, it's also, though, always tricky to let the outcome of one MMA fight, which can hinge on a bunch of different things, be the deciding factor in whether you change everything about your approach. Yeah. Because you can do a lot of things right and still lose. You can do things wrong, still win. You know, you can just go out there and just get screwed in a bunch of different ways. So it's tough to be like the win or loss outcome has to be the thing to prompt some kind of major action. If you are interested... In a clue as to what the UFC is promoting here, you really just need to look at the poster. The UFC Fight Night 135 poster. Uh, pretty standard UFC poster. Gaethje and Vic facing off against each other. The biggest type on the page in bright red says 18 combined KOs between their faces. And then much smaller down the poster KG versus Vic. That's right. So, like, even the poster is sort of winking at what we're all here for. Yeah. Well, and they're in front of, like, a brick wall? Is that what this is? At first, Actually, it looks like it's, like, the writing of, like, the Declaration of well, Independence I behind uh, them. I haven't looked at the blow-up version, but does James Vic have, uh, like, slash marks tattooed on him when he gets wins? Like, counting, you know, one, two, three, four, five? Maybe. I, I mean, I would believe that if you told me that. That was my. That's what I thought it was. Without. Oh, uh, okay. Well, which is like a cool idea for the poster, frankly. You know, it's not bad. I guess, especially when the fight night cards, the UFC seems to kind of nail those in a little bit when it comes to poster design. Uh, what do you make of 
like you know, you talked about James Vick. If he comes out here and is able to beat a guy like Justin Gaethje, uh, and especially if he's able to go out there and finish the guy, like in the main event, then, you know, he's sitting on five in a row. Is James Vick on the verge of becoming a capital G guy? Fact check. I'm not seeing a lot of tattoos on James Vick. Well, that, looking it up on the internet. That in so. itself is unusual. Possibly, yeah. Possibly wrong about about that take. Uh, well, James Vick is one of these dudes who's been super good for a long time, right? And is like huge for the 155-pound weight class. Uh, seems like we, we, when we talk about guys who are kind of lost in the shuffle despite the fact that they are really, really good fighters because the UFC has such a huge roster and it's just kind of an embarrassment of riches at this point. James Vick is like the poster child for being that guy. He's 6'3", fights at 155 pounds. He's won four fights in a row. His only professional career loss is when he got knocked out by Benil Dariush at UFC 199 back in 2016. And aside from that, his only other loss, period, on the big stage is he lost uh, to Michael Chiesa in, I believe, the finals of The Ultimate Fighter Live uh, back in 2012. So aside from that, he is a combined 16-2, and two, I believe. Uh, so not a terrible record. Coming off wins over Francisco Trinaldo, Joseph Duffy. Uh, he beat Abel Trujillo a few fights ago. He's got a win over Jake Matthews. So, yeah, man. Like, in terms of pure ability, James Vick obviously deserves to be a guy. So it's just a matter of kind of like getting him over with the fans. And I don't know what I don't know what you do besides have him beat Justin Gaethje. Like that's a pretty good next step, I would say. Got to send him to Lincoln, Nebraska, over there at the something something Bank Center or Pinnacle something. Pinnacle Bank Arena. There you go. Where all the big fights go down. That's that's where the legends are made. Pinnacle Bank Arena. You know, this is an interesting fight card, Ben. You got uh, Gaethje versus Vic. You got Michael Johnson versus Andre Feely. Angela Hill is on the card. Jake Ellenberger versus Brian Barberina, which feels like something bad is going to happen. <laughs> Like, I just have a sense of foreboding about Ellenberger versus Barbarina. Because as you know, Barbarina's a guy who will swing over the water on a rope with a torch in his mouth and land on your boat just to set it on fire. Uh, it's been a, been a while since we talked about your idea of James, or as uh, Brian Barbarina, as an uh, old-time Viking raider. He's a pirate. John Moraga on this card. Remember Eric Anders? EA? Former Alabama football player. Oh, yeah. Remember that guy? Okay. He's, yes. uh, he's on this card. James Krause. Uh, who else? Mickey Gall is on this card. Mickey Gall huh. is the Fox Sports 2 preliminary curtain jerker. Wow. Against George Sullivan. Okay. And then you got the uh, the whispering warrior, Joanne Calderwood. All right. You know, it seems like with these fight night cards, remember that guy ought to be like the, the subhead. You know, call him whatever you want. UFC Fight Night 135. Remember that guy. There's always some of that going on on the undercard these days. And yeah, once you start naming people off, I'm like, okay, now I do kind of remember. And I had no idea they were fighting this weekend. Yeah, Mickey Gall was headed to the top of the bullet. Then he loses one fight, and now he's got to go find him on Fox Sports 2. Yeah, see, I would be wondering about that if I'm Mickey Gall. You got you to hope Dodgers Padres gets over in time. Uh, so that the uh, Fox Sports 2 preliminaries get rolling you know, right, uh, right at the top of the hour. Meanwhile, the guy he, he beat not too long ago, Sage Northcutt, he can lose a couple of fights, still end up on the uh, main card of a fight night event. Don't well, have to worry about getting preempted by college baseball. I think we all know that uh, a Sage Northcutt is, is bulletproof, right? 
What's he got Mickey Mickey Gall don't got? Well, Ben Folks' attention for one, right? Mickey Gall has my attention. Dodgers versus Padres is it would be major league baseball. I'm, I'm aware of that thing. Not college. Yeah. Not college baseball. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. been a lot of fun stuff frankly percolating around this bellator 204 event from last weekend that went down uh at the sanford pentagon arena in sioux falls south dakota where all the big fights happen sioux falls baby that's the good dakota though yeah before we jump into uh talking about bellator 204 i understand you got a fact check for us over there co-main event podcast fact checking department has gotten back to us with an answer. The guys, the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Noel. Okay, so we were right about that. We were. Liam is the other one. I feel like Liam is the one we're supposed to remember. Okay, so, so he's he's the he's the bad one, right? And also maybe the good one? Yeah, he's the one with the goatee. Evil Gallagher brother. Yeah, but he's like a dick, right? I think so. Okay. I think that's sort of like the... Uh, or are they both dicks? I don't know, man. Come on. I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows a little something about Oasis and is just dying to write us an email and fill us in. Email the podcast. <laughs> Potential listener mail rant of the week topic, by there the way. Go. Which uh, one of the Gallagher brothers from Oasis is the asshole? So this guy, James Gallagher, Ben, fighting at UFC 204, uh, undefeated, comes in undefeated. He's a teammate of Conor McGregor over there at SBG Gym in, uh, in Dublin. Which is apparently enough to make you a thing now. Well, it seemed like he was trying to steal some plays out of the playbook of Conor McGregor here, talking about how he was going to beat, beat up, oh, also, fact check, Ricky Bendejas? That's actually closer than I thought it was when you first said Antonio Banderas. Talking about how he was going to win that fight, and then he was going to force uh, Darian Caldwell, the Bellator bantamweight champion, to come defend the title against him in Dublin. Did you see any of the video from this, how he strides across the cage and gets in... Uh, his yeah. opponent's face before it starts. Yeah, this one made some highlights. So, kind of like a poor man's Conor McGregor thing happening here for James Gallagher. Until the fight starts. This thing went down pretty ugly. In pretty ugly fashion for James Gallagher. Including getting Shawn Michaels' WWE <laughs> super kicked right in his face. Yeah, then. Yeah, he did do that. Do you think when Conor McGregor watches something like this, it's a peek into an alternate universe? This could have been how it went down. Because for Conor McGregor, like, it's easy now to look at it and be like, okay, he's a huge superstar and everything went his way. And then, you know, the one kind of like blip where he loses that fight against Nate Diaz and he bounces right back and everything is still great. Uh, early on, there could have been this moment where Conor McGregor was this swaggering new guy in the UFC you know, he wasn't quite this over the top as far as you know, trying to get attention for himself, like getting right up in the guy's face beforehand. But, you know, imagine if he had gone out there in that Jose Aldo fight, for instance, or even the Chad Mendez fight, and just gotten completely throttled. Which yeah. could happen at any point to anybody. You have a bad night. Uh, he would have been kind of the cautionary tale instead of becoming what he is now, which is a blueprint for other people to try to follow. 
Uh, yeah, well, obviously, to work the Conor McGregor gimmick, things had to go off pretty well for Conor McGregor. And they did, and they did, frankly. They went off as well as could possibly be expected. I imagine that Conor McGregor doesn't spend a lot of time reflecting at this point about uh, different paths, misfortunes that could have uh, befallen him. In fact, I would wager to say that's probably the antithesis of what Conor McGregor is yeah, all about. you might be onto something there. Let's see the... Uh, the Instagram post here from James Gallagher, who after getting uh, booted right in his face and then G and P'd into the black lands writes, he caught me. I got beat fair a square. I'm 21 years old. I'm still a fucking animal. I will be back. I love this game. It's what I do. I'm down, but not broken. He caught me lucky. Huh? I got clipped and I went out on my shield. Okay. So, this is not even the one that he ends immediately following the fight by saying, nothing will keep me down. My spirit is bruised, never broken. I am still the shit. Is the, uh, the final word there from James Gallagher. So uh, maybe not a transformative learning experience. <laughs> well, it's weird to me that it can be enough to get you into the status of somebody we care about or are paying attention to because it's like, Oh, this guy's Conor McGregor's training partner, and he kind of acts like him. Because yep. there's a couple of those now. Yep. And uh, that's strange. That's weird. Because just being a training partner of the guy does not make you good. And just saying that you are the shit does not make it so. So it's weird how easily we are kind of pulled into this. I mean, yeah, at this point, it's sort of a tried and true formula, right? Although, like, even though it is a tried and true formula, I believe the experience of James Gallagher and our earlier discussion about how things needed to go pretty much pitch perfect for Conor McGregor for it to work illustrates how difficult it is to pull it off. Because we talked about this before on the show. People are always saying, give me 500 Conor McGregors, and I would, you know, that would be wonderful. There aren't 500 Conor McGregors because running this gimmick is a lot more difficult than you think it is. It is. A lot of things have to go right for you. And a lot of people will be waiting to point and laugh if they go wrong for you. Let's talk about Bellator Bantamweight champion Darian Caldwell. Because okay. he beats uh, Noah Lahat in this in the main event of Bellator 204. Then he gets on the, the mic and he calls the Pitbull brothers the Armpit brothers. So That's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not bad, honestly. Uh, and then we asked about it later. They, they, why did you call them the Armpit brothers? Because I think they stink. I'm into it. You got me. He is planning to go up to 145. Well, this one was at 145, right? It was a non-title fight. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, he, he wants to win the title at 145 and then go back down and defend the Bantamweight title. And he pretty much says everyone, everyone can you know, wait till he's done with his business, basically. Uh, and I, at the top of the show, I said he was just spitballing ideas for how the titles can work. Proposes that uh, whichever Pitbull brother is the champion there at 145, uh, just meet him at 140, and they'll put both belts on the line. That's just—that's not how it works. That's not how it goes. You don't. That's not how we do it. You can't defend the bantamweight title at 140 pounds. That's just kind of uh, not how it works. Don't think you can win the featherweight title at 140 pounds either. Well, I think if you came in, if you came in under, okay. Like if you're just having a featherweight title fight and you come in under, like that's not against the rules. I guess so. But then what if the other guy is like, okay, sure, I'll meet you at 140. And then he's like, ha-ha, and shows up at 145. What can you say then? He played you. All right, more fun stuff happening here. Remember Ricky Bandeas? 
I remember Antonio Banderas. James Gallagher tweets, I want a rematch. Ricky Bandeas tweets, beg me with the laughing smiley face emoji. He knows what's happening yeah. here. He fully understands what's going on. It's a student of the game right there. That's See, now I, I have to wonder, what, ha- what does this stuff look like if you're outside the MMA bubble? And we're trying to explain it to you. We just, it's... We rely on so many, like, self-referential things, and we just kind of assume that you have to be a shit-eating wild man to even get down with some of this stuff. Imagine trying to just explain this to somebody. Like, well, this guy trains with this other guy who's actually famous. Then he gets beat up. Then the other guy appropriates the famous guy's stick. Man, I would I would look at us and be like, you guys have wasted your lives. <laughs> uh, well, remember uh, last week when we talked about Bellator, and I said the thing that Bellator wants to be is around. Yes, I do remember that. It seems like an appropriate event to point out that, like, a lot of kind of good stuff percolating here for Bellator. Not necessarily anything that's going to, you know, put them over the top in any kind of popularity contest. But, like, you know, the James Gallagher thing is nice to have. Logan Storley gets another win. I believe he's still undefeated. And, by the way, uh, in the same way that James Gallagher is a teammate of uh, Conor McGregor, I believe one of Logan Storley's deals is that he is the protege of Brock Lesnar in some way. And then of course you got Darian Caldwell getting the win in the main event, talking a bunch of junk about uh, basically everyone. Uh, this is a, this is a good example of like a, a solid Bellator event where they are just around. And because they're around, we're talking about them. And so, because there ain't a whole lot else going on. So there you go. Do you want to do just saying stuff? And then we can get out of here for this week, Ben. Sure. I do. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, this weekend on MMA Junkie, we ran a story where a guy, an American fighter who's entering the K-1 World Grand Prix as a cruiserweight this September, uh, told us about uh, his career living and fighting in Japan. There was a moment where I was forced to consider how things might have gone differently for him, because first, he did MMA, Mm -hmm. uh, but had a slightly losing record in MMA, went into kickboxing where he's been far more successful, and I couldn't help but remember... This lad's debut as an MMA fighter. Uh, you might remember it as well because it was a, a close fight. A lot of people might say it could have gone either way. And Judge Chad Dundas mm-hmm. scored this bout for his opponent. Yeah, Ryan Hart. Ryan, Team, Team Ryan Quest, Hart I believe, was the guy. from Team Quest. Judge Chad Dundas gave it to Ryan Hart, I believe, in a 29-28 situation. Yep. Yeah. Actually, maybe the, maybe the first round was a 10-10. And then maybe he won the next two. You know what, though, Ben? I know where you're going with this. Are you uh, just saying stuff? I'm just saying maybe Chad Dundas altered the course of Brian McGrath's professional fighting career. And maybe in a way, when Brian McGrath is sitting around in Tokyo with his kickboxing titles, in a sad, twisted way, he has Chad Dundas to thank for it. No, I mean, I like the positive spin you put on there at the end. Uh <laughs> It was you stand nice by to, your decision? I mean, it was not really that close of a fight. Right? It was pretty close. Yeah, but it was not a split decision close fight. Like, there was some home cooking going on with one of those other judges. Wow. I don't Bombshell. know who it was. Bombshell yeah. dropped by Chad Dennis here. There you go. It was good to you're talking about Brian McGrath. Bloodbath McGrath. That's right. Uh, it was good to catch up with him over on the MMA Junkie. Great, great guy. You know what? He suffered from being a, like, almost too good of an MMA fighter for the local Missoula MMA scene. Yeah, he always he had was to like fight tough super enough, tough guys. Yeah, he had to top fight like other tough fighters. Like, because I remember when he lost to the guy from Team Quest, 
pretty sure that guy had like a bunch of fights. Yeah. And was like a known commodity. He was on the super scene. experienced. Yeah. And it was his first, it was Brian McGrath's first fight. Also important to note, Chris Lieben was a special guest at that event. Yeah. I believe he uh, forced our friend Brad Monahan to stop on the way there so that he could have a bunch of shots of tequila. Then he showed up to do his special guest thing and then decided he was just going to kind of help out and corner the guy from Team Quest who he kind of knew, uh, even though he had not come there as a member of his entourage and was not licensed to corner him, but he was still right there with his face against the, the fence yelling instructions in between rounds. I like the way that you uh, say that he was not licensed, like someone <laughs> at a small-time Montana MMA event is going to like turn up from the athletic commission with a clipboard ready to inspect some shit. Fight was at the fairgrounds. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying, you know what's up with your boy Vanderlei Silva? I do, but go ahead and tell me anyway. He's going to have one more MMA fight over there in Bellator. I believe he's fighting Rampage Jackson. And then he says, I will do this fight and then I'll run for Congress. Now, he's running for Congress in Brazil, I should <laughs> okay, point out. Yes. Not necessarily... Uh, It'd be a better story if he was just decided... Here in America. Yeah. If I get elected, I'll go one direction. And if I don't get elected, I'll go another one. Is that Van Lee Silva threatening to become evil? Is he threatening to turn into a supervillain? I mean, I'm just saying it's nice to have options, right? Is, he, is that him saying, elect me or face the consequences? Yeah, it's like some Bane shit. Almost. He's got my vote. So Vanderlei Silva is saying if he gets elected, he will go be a congressman in Brazil. And if he doesn't, probably carry on being a professional fighter. Well, you assume that's the other direction. I'm just saying. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the show, you know how to do it. Email the podcast. We'll be back next week to look ahead to all of the great stuff that's happened. What what happens after this uh, James Vick? Uh, Justin Gaethje thing. We're closing in on UFC 228 right around the corner. Yeah, September 8th. Yeah. Yeah. So we will uh, we'll think of some stuff to talk about next week. We will get into the thick of this UFC uh, fall schedule. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Actually, you know, maybe this could become a thing. Everybody's like, oh, this fighter should retire, whatever. Maybe he's like, all right, you want me to retire so bad? Vote for me for state son. <laughs> Well, uh, put Chris, your put your vote where your mouth is, tough guy. Chris Lytle has been dead for office, right? That's right. Illinois or Indiana? Indiana. Long time Indiana guy. Barely still following in the footsteps of Chris Lytle. Chris Lytle just did some bare knuckle boxing. So maybe that's where the steps are headed. How parallel are the two stories? We will find out. Don't sit there and act like you cannot imagine Barely Silva doing bare knuckle boxing six months from now. Don't sit there and act like you can't see Barely Silva having committee meetings and shit in the Brazilian Congress. Do you think that his uh, his like campaign commercials would be him like on black and white in a basement? You know, like he's getting closer and closer to the camera and he talks about uh, common sense, tax strategy, are you, are you infrastructure, education. Is this all education. part of your audition to be his campaign manager right now? Look, better like, I'm, I'm available, man. I'm ready to do work. Let's win this thing. We got to do this check.